A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That distinctive music, dear listeners, for anyone of a certain age can mean only one thing. The 1978 World Cup, in particular, the Scottish team's participation in, for me, one of the great World Cup tournaments of all time. Welcome to the Football History Podcast. My name is Nick Hart, and joining me is professional Scott, Mr Neil Andrews, football writer and professional Scott. How are you doing, mate? I'm very well. Hopefully my Scottish accent won't put the listeners off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everyone around the world, everyone listening to this, we say, we don't sound very Scottish, does he? Neil, the 1978 World Cup, played in Argentina, of course. Um, for me, on a personal note, it was um, it was one of the first World Cups. We'd, I'd seen the 74 World Cup, which had been played in uh, West Germany, as it was then, and that was the first time I'd seen a major tournament um, played on colour television very Germanic colour television. But this was the most... 78 was the first time I'd seen what I call a spectacular tournament. And obviously, with the benefit of hindsight and time, you know, many years after the event, it was in some ways a a sad tournament in many respects because of the political situation in Argentina at that time. But my gosh, it was spectacular. The the Argentine fans with their ticker tape welcomes is, is something that will, as a, as as a seventeen year old at the time, that was that was a, f- a level of football I'd never seen before, and it was one of the my most memorable World Cups. Were, were you were you um, young enough to remember it, or are you are you old enough to remember it, or are you um, did it predate you yep. slightly? No, it's the I was six um, in the World Cup. Um, so old enough to know what it is, and I know I was an avid follower of it, and I know this from an historical document. So when my grand died a couple of years ago, we were sorting out a house, and I came across an old exercise book from primary school when I was six, and in right. it are two pictures. One was Joe Jordan scoring against Peru, and one was um, Holland scoring their equaliser against Argentina in the final. And both were remarkably accurate, even though they weren't lifelike figures, to be fair. Um, 
But yeah, so I remember being obsessed with that World Cup um, because I had all the Scotland paraphernalia. I had a um, bag with it. I had posters, I had postcards, and most important of all, I had the kit as well. Um, so I was very invested in the Scotland team and that World Cup and I remember it very clearly. And um, yeah, even years later, I'd always talk about Harry Hand's goal against Italy. But it was yeah. you know, the goal from, it seemed like he, he started, you know, he shot from Holland and, you know, it ended up in the back of the net in Argentina. It was that far out. You know, it was kind of, you know, the long-range effort that sticks in your mind and the goals kind of stick in your mind at the time. Because I know people talk about 1982. And as much as I enjoyed 1982, 78, I think would always be my favourite because it was the first one. Yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the, I suppose, one of the, the, the effects, benefits, whatever you want to call it, of, of becoming old is that um, tournaments of that era stand out in your mind in a way that um, others don't since. I mean, I was trying to think before we started to speak today of, a, of another tournament that felt as spectacular as this. I suppose maybe you could talk about Italia 90, maybe to some level, to some level, um, the, the South African World Cup of 2010 with the Venezuelans. But this was um an extravaganza of football played in a hotbed nation and that's that's for me is where world cups ought to be played the argentine fans and in the end as it would turn out the, the host win for argentina beating a very good dutch side in in the final um and we'll come back to that dutch side shortly um but that's it looked and felt like a proper world cup played in a country that really cared about it and you don't always get that. We haven't got it in the, in the modern kind of corporate era, do you? You know, it's it's one of the one of the one of the sad effects of money coming into it on the on the grand scale. We seem to be like Qatar. I'm thinking of now, but you know, to some extent, some of the other locations that it's been played in since. I think there there was a couple of reasons why it kind of suddenly stood out um, because you remember West Germany. It was torrential rain. Um, yeah, and yeah. The, the Brazil team had forgotten their heritage, as it were, yeah. and were kicking yeah. everyone. Um, yeah. Wasn't really special. Um, there was a couple of shocks, etc. But it was kind of the first one in colour, a bit of sponsorship. It was really not really the same after Mexico in 1970. So the other thing going, I think, for it in Argentina, and I think the problem with the World Cup today, or should we say people's uh, thoughts and feelings towards 1978 now, is it's very much tarnished by... I don't want to say perfect 2020 hindsight or rose vision mm. spectacles, but people look at the teams and think, well, why the hell would Scotland have a chance? Why are they considered favourites? What people found to forget was the state those teams are in. It was one of the most open World Cups because so many teams were, should we say, um, at that point where, you know, they were either rebuilding or, you know, a great team was kind of fading away kind of thing. They were, you know, they were in transition, either good or bad. And as a result, you know, teams went there and it was sort of like Scotland went with an awful lot of form behind them over the previous couple of years. And I know everyone goes on about Ali's army, etc. but he had put together quite a team um, to the point that Yao Havalanche, who was FIFA president, predicted an Argentina-Scotland final. Um, and people kind of forget that um, because, you know, they look at West Germany, um, who weren't the side they were, as they were in no, 74. No, no. Dutch weren't the same side. Well, they were lacking Johan Cruyff, no Cruyff in the Dutch side, which was a major They, they had issues with a goalkeeper as well. Um, you know, and they ended up with the same goalkeeper in 74. Um, they perfectly decent goalkeeper, not a World Cup final goalkeeper because of injuries to the, you know, their first choice keeper. Um, the keeper they should have had wasn't going because he fell out with Cruyff uh, years before. But mm. then you had Italy. You know, Italy, I think, finished fourth. But, you know, that Italian side, that was a young Italian side, and nothing was really expected of them. And they managed to actually win the group. That should be Argentina as well. Um, so, you know, you had Poland as well. We were going through a bit of transition from the 73 sides. You know, you had Hungary. You know, it was quite an open competition. Um, and no one could really predict who was going to win it. Uh, you know, Brazil was still, you know, kicking several shades or whatever out of the opposition as well as playing some fancy football. Spain weren't the Spain team you would think of today. Um, no, so no, you know, no. it was it was funny outside, and you know, Sweden were 
a strong team in Austria were, you know, a very strong team at the time. You know, the so French, it was French side was a, a classic one as well. I mean, that, again, uh, whether it be contenders for the tournament, but that was a uh, Jean Tigano, I think, was in that French team from memory. I haven't checked that fact. So he was um, with Platini as well. Young Platini was there. I yeah. think Platini was only 21, but they had a lot of bad luck and um, lost by the odd goal to Argentina and um, Italy and went home. But obviously, Everyone remembers the French side for wearing that green and white strip because there was a clash of strips because um, Hungary and France had both bought their That's white right. strip to the same place. The, the um, tournament was played, um, it, it was the Southern Hemisphere winter. I think it was played in our yeah. summer, but the Southern Hemisphere winter. So unusually for a World Cup, which in, to my young mind always were played in, in the heat of Mexico. That was the classic one that I yeah. you know, have been most aware of. But it was quite odd to see long sleeve shirts and clearly windy conditions and blokes wearing jackets in the crowd. You know, it's not what you associate with a World Cup. I mean, I suppose the first thing we have to say, I've, t- I've touched on it already, um, and again, with uh, hindsight is, 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 is wonderful, as, as we all know in this life. Um, underpinning the, the FIFA 1978 World Cup was the fact that there'd been the military coup in Argentina just two years before. And now, I, as a, how old were I been then? I've been 15 going towards 17 by the time the actual World Cup was played. Um, so I was kind of news... I would watch the news, but it, at that age, things don't really mean that they don't sink in. I don't know. They don't have a, you don't have a depth of understanding as to what that meant. And of course, many of the, um, you know, the, the, the military junta that had taken over in Argentina in <clears throat> 1976 had committed and would go on to commit more and more atrocities locally. Um, it was reported, as I remember it, Neil, but I don't remember. As a kid, it doesn't sink in what that means. And I, since then, I've watched um, documentaries. Um, there was one that I saw a couple of years ago. I think maybe um might have been Match of the Day that had done a documentary, and I'm sure it was with Mario Kempes, the uh, famous scorer of the winning goal, in the end, talking about his treatment and his family's treatment at the hands of the army in Argentina. Um, and it's it's an eye-opener because, you know, as a as a 17-year-old, I watched it as a purely as a football tournament. That's all that all that I cared, not that I cared about, was all I could absorb. Um, now you look at it and you realise what had happened in the preceding period to it and then in the post-World Cup period. The, the, the World Cup winning team were not treated necessarily as the heroes <laughs> they, they thought they might have been by the, by the military. It's um, the, yeah, say, they, they, underpinning they, of sadness to it all. Yeah, they kind of, um, should we say, um, kept, the, kept the military in power for a bit because, you know, they won the they World did. Cup. They did, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, you had this kind of, Stark contrast because they built the um, most um, what's the word I'm looking high tech television center for the World Cup in South America, um, you know, beaming color pictures around the world. Yeah, and yeah. you could you could only watch it in black and white in Argentina, ironically, because there were no color tellies. Um, you know, the, there was that famous myth that was put around by um, an article that was then reprinted in the Guardian about the black posts at the bottom of the the you know the black rings at the bottom of the goalposts were there to kind of symbolize the the missing um in Argentina. It disappeared there. Yeah. 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 Um yeah. but it wasn't actually because one of them in Mendoza were actually red. And the reason why they were there is for the black and white TV so they could get the contrast because you'd also <laughs> see them I think you see them the nineteen eighty European Championships, nineteen eighty two World Cup as well. And in South America they've they've gotten quite a lot on the post because it is um a thing there so scotland went on tour to south america the previous year in 77 and played argentina and the posts i think they played in boca juniors stadium because the posts were uh blue and yellow and mm. it's the black and white tv to give the contrast between the white lines and the posts and you know the the, the poor technology back then but yeah there, there was this undercurrent um that kind of still dogs the tournament to this day in terms of uh the brazil not the brazil game the peru argentina game and the six nil um, you know, and the alleged shipments of corn from Argentina to Peru, and you know, Peru throwing the game with an Argentinian goalkeeper. How true that is, you know, it's got all the uh, ingredients you need for a good spy thriller, etc. But, um, the truth <laughs> is, at the beginning, you know, I think Peru hit the post twice and then just folded. I don't know how much that is true. I don't, you know, you, you, you know, but I don't um, think there's evidence to support it. It's, it's, it's 
There, there, there is a slight evidence, there's circumstantial evidence. But it has the ring of in, truth, Neil, doesn't it? But nothing to... Yeah. Because um, there's there's a dark story around uh, Willie Johnson's found drug test as well. Okay. Because during that um, South American tour, Johnston was on fire, um, played very well against Chile, and was tearing Argentina apart until he got into a fight and got sent off. And apparently, he said one of the Argentinian players, I think it was the wonderfully named Daniel Killer, who um, <laughs> said, you know, you're too good, you, you won't be here next year. And he always says that he was targeted um, by the Argentinians uh, for the kind of, uh, should we say, the, to get the urine sample. And that's kind of backed up to a certain extent in that he wasn't actually the first choice to go give the sample after the Peru game. Um, right. It was Kenny Dalgleish and I think Archie Gemmell. And in the end, it turned out to be Kenny Dalgleish and Willie Johnson. He said, you know, we both went and he looked at Kenny Dalgleish's sample. He looks at him and went, oh, mine's a lot darker here. There's something going on. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, you know, did admit he did take those, you know, the tablets that were kind of used throughout English football. So, you know, yeah, there, there is yeah. kind of, you know, that's not saying he's not innocent at all because he admits to taking it was it reactive and I think it was which was kind of an energy booster you could get in boots. Um, but, you know, he, he kind of does pinpoint to that game and, you know, the underlining, not threats, but the intimidation and the, the kind of, you know, they were going to win at all costs. They couldn't afford the, to lose, basically. Well, I think it's, it's that, actually. I mean, it's, it's, I was just going to make the same point. Um, the, the the military junta that had taken over in 70... Ironically, listeners, I, reading about this is always... I, I find this a fascinating tournament because I hadn't realised the logo. One of my favourite logos, it's the, the World Cup, which is the the Argentine sky blue and white um, in a kind mm. of like a curve around um, an old uh, black and white panelled football. But I didn't realise that was that was uh, an imitation of the trademark gesture of the um, previous president, uh, Juan Perón, who had been ousted by the army, and that he had a kind of like a an arms curved gesture to embrace the people, and that was that was an imitation of that. Um, the junta wanted to change it, but they were too far into the close to the tournament to actually change the the. Um, the, uh, the 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 logo. So ironically, they had to play under the previous man's um, logo. The whole tournament was played out with his logo as, as their as their badge, um, which is kind of funny um, if 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 you if you if you like. Um, but certainly, um, Scotland came into the game into the tournament. Neil, as I mean, we were just saying off air, weren't we? Um, I, you look back at the old YouTube footage, and there isn't. I mean, some of it is really good, and some of the uh, footage is, is a bit shaky um but that was a decent decent scottish side and obviously they came a cropper um, initially against peru who were, i think you said were south american champions which i don't think was fully absorbed in in england in, in yeah, at the time. they were um reigning champions they won it in 75 um and they still had the team that had impressed many in mexico in 1970 so they still had Cubius, um and Hector Champions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Ali McLeod had problems. That's not to say he had problems per se. Um, he had problems mm. with his squad in that, you know, he'd lost Sandy Jardine. He'd also lost um Danny McGrain, who was arguably the finest right back uh, in the world yeah, at the time. Very decent Um so yeah. he'd had a niggling ankle injury all during the competition. And in the home championships just before that, uh was it Gordon McQueen did a gold line clearance, whacked his knee into the post against Wales and was, um, although he still went, he was effectively out of the World Cup. And so in that Peru game, he played Kenny Burns, or as Brian Clough called him, Kenneth Burns. And (laughs) he played for Scythe. And he had uh, Martin Buchan playing as a left back. Um, You know, and he wasn't going in there with his strongest defence. I think that that four is the first time they'd ever played with each other. Uh, But he had other problems elsewhere. So, he was a very loyal man, and that selection went back. I think it went back as far as you know the you know the qualifying games. Because what people really do forget is that Scotland beat the reigning European champions to get there in Czechoslovakia. And, yes, and, you know, yes, that's there, right. There yeah. is the disputed game against Wales, um, but you know, even if that game had ended nil nil, I think the what people forget is Wales still had to go to Czechoslovakia and they end up losing that game three nil. So it may have probably put the checks back into the running, but you know, is what it is. You know, 
handball goes in and then Dalgleish makes it 2-0. And um, you've, you've seen the pictures of all the bottles yeah. at Anfield following morning. But um, <laughs> in, going back to the squad, you know, he was very loyal to that team that got in there. And he stuck with the midfield of Bruce Rioch and Don Masson, who hadn't really been performing at club level. Um, they, you know, even Bruce Rioch admits that he was under par. And so it started off really well, you know, one nil up against Joe Jordan. And then just shortly before half time, you know, they equalised. Uh, very poor mistake. It came down the right side. Danny McGrain was there. Would it have happened? Don't know. Was his replacement mm. international quality? Don't know. I think that was his first. Um, competitive game as well, funny enough. Uh, the, the guy that came into play, I think it was Tom Forsyth. Um, Forsyth, yeah, just looking yeah. at the, the, the back line was, um, uh, back line was, yeah, our goalkeeper Alan Ruff, uh, Martin Buck, and Stuart Kennedy, Tom Forsyth, and Kenny Burns listed as defenders. I could have been, no, during Kennedy, sorry, at right back. I think Forsyth was in the middle. Um, but they definitely, you know, it's definitely their first kind of competitive game. Um, but then in the second half, Scotland won the penalty, and Don Masson, who was a very good penalty taker, decent, hit, decent player, not County hit, player, yeah, arguably the worst penalty of all time. And um, and then they went down the other end and scored. But uh, you know, Alan Ruff came in for a lot of stick, um, you know, for some of the Peru goals. You know, there was a lot mm. of laughter at his expense, especially from you know English pundits. But you know, he, he does say, you know, if you look at that free kick that Cuba scored, he said the problem was he asked who takes the free kicks and no one knew because for whatever mm. reason Alan McLeod wanted to focus on the strengths of his own team and not try to install fear into So it wasn't much fight. intelligence yeah. about the Peruvian side. Yeah. No, nor the Iranian side, funny enough. Um and no one really knew who took the free kicks. But as you said, there had been a substitution. And Lou Macari was on the end of the wall. And that wasn't his normal place. And if you look at the free kick, Lou Macari actually ducks and moves out the way of the ball. If he stood there, <laughs> it would have hit him square in the face. And as I said, you know, he moved. And he had to get across the goal. And to his credit, he made an awful lot of you know, space up. And he does get a fingertip to it. He really does, you know, make an effort mm. to keep the ball out. But, you know, yeah. the wall should have done its job there, you know, and he, he kind of come into a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, kicking for it. But, you know, afterwards, you know, everyone's going into thing. But because Willie Johnston failed the drugs test, it actually worked out better for Scotland. Because they lost the game, the result stood. If Scotland had won a draw and, you know, he... Then he failed it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, it would have meant that Peru would have had a 3-0 uh, victory uh, walkover, which would have made life even more complicated for the team. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. But um, after the drug scandal hit, Don Masson went inside some kind of strange support of Willie Johnson, went to um, Alan McLeod and said he'd also taken Reactivin. Whether he had or not, they right. don't know, but he was trying to support. Oh, yeah, I don't too. So rather than risk it, he dropped Don Masson for the rest of the tournament. And that kind of... So, you know, they've lost Don Masson now. Um, they've lost Willie Johnson. Uh, Rhea was out injured for the Iran game. And... Yep. You know, things were falling apart, uh, and it was beyond Danny McLeod's control. But you know, because he'd instilled such euphoria and such confidence, you know, people were saying it was misplaced. I don't think it was misplaced, 
to stretch of the imagination. I know he was going around talking about, you know, I'd like to come back with a medal and I hope it's the gold one. And he, he gets pilloried for that now, especially by English fans. But, you know, England was singing about back home in 1970. You know, this time we're going to get it right in 1982. And, you know, Graham Taylor actually told England fans to put their feet up, get a beer and enjoy the competition because we're going to win it for, you know, year in 1992. I mean, I, I, I don't... Um... To some level, I, I don't know what people think a manager will say. I mean, if you're going to go to a tournament, you know, unless unless you're rank rank outsiders, um, then you can say you're going to want to go as far as you possibly can do, perhaps, or some variation of that. But you know, your aim should be to win the game in front of you, and then progress, and then ultimately, your aim must be to win it. Because I don't know why else you're there if you're not there to, to hopefully, not silverware, it's goldware. But you know what I mean. What's the point of going if that's not your aim? Yeah, he he did, you know, he did install and he did build confidence up. You know, people talk about the kind of parade before they left, the celebration parade. Mm. That wasn't actually his idea. He didn't want to do it. If you see him walk out, he's got his head bowed, his hands in his pockets. You know, he's a bit embarrassed by it. That was the Scottish FA trying to get some money because they needed money. They were actually quite skint at the time, um, which also caused problems um, in Argentina because the hotel they got, Apparently, the beds were rock hard. There was no water in the swimming pool. There was nowhere to relax. Because right. of what had happened in 72 at the Olympics, there was still high security. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Players weren't allowed out. When they were allowed out, then, you know, you got press reports saying that all the Scottish players were drunk and they're all drinking whiskey and what have you. And, you know, they're, they're absolutely legless. Um, and three of them broke out to go to a casino. And when they came back, they had to break in and they were faced by armed guards. <laughs> Um, which I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's a great story that Alan Ruff stuck his hands in the air and went, don't shoot, I'm the goalkeeper. But, you know. <laughs> I'm just but, looking at the front front line there, Kenny Dalgleish and Joe Jordan. In. I mean, you know, as, as as we've said a few times, hindsight is easy. That's a decent front line. I think that would take the field for any team anywhere in the world. Two top quality players there in their different ways. Well, the well, Dalgleish was there as a given. You know, he just won the European Cup with Liverpool. He just come off a great, you know, season with Liverpool and you know, his debut season in English football. Yeah. Joe Jordan was there because he'd scored some very important goals. You know, he scored against Czechoslovakia. You know, um, he'd played his part in the Wales victory, but you know, he'd also scored, you know, at the World Cup previously, and he'd also scored, you know, some very very big goals for Scotland over the you know course of the you know, previous four or five years. Interestingly enough, there was, you know, then who'd you take with them? You know, so mm. there was um, Derek Johnston, um, who had scored 30 goals at Rangers and was kind of on fire. But he decided he then wanted to play centre-back. He had a complete loss of confidence and faith and didn't want to play up front anymore. Uh, then you had, um, was it Joe Harper, who Ali McLeod knew from his Aberdeen days, who, mm. you know, was all the foil for, you know, the like, like replacement for... Kenny Dalgleish, but you know, there was a case for Andy Gray and Ian Wallace as well, who I think was knocking him in for Coventry at the time. I think they dismissed Wallace quite early on, but Andy Gray had just won, you know, player of the year and young player of the year, but yeah. he'd only had a handful of caps and hadn't really performed for Scotland. And Ali McLeod would have had a lot of explaining to do, you know, you didn't take the guy at Rangers who just scored 30 goals instead of this youngster, but um, goals were hard to come by. Um, so it was a problem, but you know, between the Iran game, sorry, the Peru and the Iran game, you know, they still hadn't sorted the bonuses for winning the World Cup, and the, no. the bonuses they were on was not great. Even honest, I think they were on a, you know, I think the Scottish FA agreed to give them the squad fourteen thousand pounds between them if they won the World Cup, which even in nineteen seventy um, um, eight, sorry, was not a great deal of money. But, you know, that was ongoing throughout the tournament because, you know, they hadn't agreed it beforehand. The players wanted to know what they were getting. They just got the new Umbro strips and they were complaining, we're advertising Umbro, you got paid for that, you don't need the money, etc. Yeah. But the Scottish FA at the time was really brassic, so did need the money. So, you know, was trying to get as much from this competition as they could. The fact that the hotel wasn't very good as well, you know, really, you know, basically ate into the confidence, you know. Mm. It really kind of... They were just demoralised. And after the Peru game, it just went downhill. Um, and as Bruce Freelk said, the worst horror show he's ever seen was uh, Scotland Iran because he was sitting on the sideline. Well, that was, I mean, I, I, just, I mean, Peru would finish 3 1. Um, early goal for Joe Jordan for Scotland going one up, then Cueto on 43, and then two from one of the great players, Teofilio Cubias on 71 and 77. And, and that was um, good night, Vienna, for, for Scotland in that game. But 
I think I just want to say, um, having watched the YouTube footage again before we move on to Iran, Neil, is it, that was a very, very decent Peruvian side and probably not well known for you know poor reasons in this country. The, the, the quality of that side wasn't wasn't well known, and um, that was a decent decent team that uh, beat Scotland. But I think the Iran game is really where the wheels would come off of the Scottish um, tournament. Really, one all that would finish. Um, that really was a, a, I mean, Iran had already been beaten 3 0 by, by Holland. Um, that would be a game that really, there's no excuses on that one. How do you, how do you see that one all draw from your side? A lot of it was in, you know, again, he changed the back line. So, um, Willie Donaghy came in at left back, um, yeah. which meant Buckham moved across to partner, I'm going to call him Kenneth Burns because he makes me laugh yeah. in the middle. <laughs> um, and that was the first time they'd played together. Um, so there was a lot of unknowns, you know, unfamiliarity. He brought in Archie Gemmel in the middle um, as one of the replacements, I think, for Rioc. And yep. he brought in John Robinson down the left, hoping to kind of see the form he'd shown for Forest when they won the league that season. But the key thing was that he was going to play Graham Souness. And he had a choice, Graham Souness or Lou Macari. And he went with Lou Macari. Graham Souness, it, it played... Scotland probably would have won that game. Um, the problem Ali McLeod had was that everyone knows Graham Souness now. At the time, I think mm. he only played six times for Scotland. Yeah, he was a relatively international novice. And I think he went with Macari just for the experience. But Macari was one of those that was kind of in the middle of the furore about the bonuses, etc. Right. Um, he ducked for the Peru goal, obviously. Um, yeah. And- it was a case of just misfiring, 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 you know, and Scotland's goal came from the most bizarre own goal you'll ever see. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Iranian guy who scored its name. I might have a go. Eskandarian. Yeah. He, um, Probably wrong. Basically, he bumped into the goalkeeper and with an open goal, whacked it straight into the back of the net. And it's sort of like yeah. Scotland players looked embarrassed. But, you know, second half, again, down the flank where... Um, Danny McGrain would have been, they scored a goal. You know, it was a very sloppy goal to give away and just misfired, misfired, misfired. In the end of that game, that's the famous thing where all the Scotland fans were, you know, turned on Ali McLeod, you know, turned on the fans, you know, turned on the team coach, etc. You know, because a lot of them have spent an awful lot of money to get there. Have you ever seen... You well, know, it was not easy. No. This, uh, this was a documentary. Era. Yeah, Scotland 78 Love Story. You, you hear some of the stories, you know, people flying to, you know, Barbados then going across by a boat and then getting the train down and, you know, steamers, yeah. etc. You know, people selling their shops and businesses to go, you know. Yeah, madness in hindsight, but there we are. Scotland came into the final game of their group still with a chance of qualification. I think they had, did they not have to beat Holland by Three clear two goals? goals? Three clear Three goals. goals yeah. So yeah. the way it, it turned out, and this is another thing people have looked People think, oh, Holland just took their foot off the gas because, you know, they'd already qualified. They hadn't. So if Scotland won by three clear goals, they would have gone through and not the, the Dutch. Yeah. Um, you know, and the chips were stacked against them. Sooners came in. Riot came back in. Um, and all of a sudden, they had a lot stronger side, uh, which which clearly showed in the game itself. You know, what people forget, you know, I think Riot hit the bar early on. I think Joe yep. Jordan had a goal uh, wiped out, and then Scotland were punished with a penalty that was never a penalty. It was a clear tackle, I think, by Kennedy, and they were, the ref blew up, gave a penalty, and all of a sudden they one nil down. Uh, then Kenny Dalgrish um, equalised, and then Scotland got their own penalty. Gemmell scored, and then you've got that fantastic moment when Archie Gemmell scored one of the goals of the tournament, uh, which everyone's purely familiar with. And then you'll see Graham Sooner saying, you know. Just need one more goal, one more goal, and then um, two minutes later, Johnny Rep, the great name, yeah. John. I always thought it was a fan. I mean, that was a very decent Dutch side. Then I'm just looking, um, talking about the Scottish team, but I'm just looking at some of the names in the Dutch side. Johan Nijskins had been a um, mainstay of the of the '74 yeah. Dutch side. Johnny Rep, I think just on name alone, I always thought was a, had to be a brilliant player just because of his name. Um, but you know, there was a decent, but. That side so, there. Yeah, sorry. There's a funny story about Johnny Rep from the 1982 World Cup. He went as a kind of a pundit and he mm. went to try and watch as many games as possible. And he went to see Scotland v Brazil and he stood okay. in the Scotland end 
And he thought, no one will recognise me. Everyone recognises it. Turning around, looking at him, looking at him. And um, he went, you're the bloke that killed Scotland. And he turned around and went, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> Fair play to him. Fair play to him. I mean, look, that Dutch side, I mean, we've said it already, but that was that, that was a team that would go the distance to the final and be very unlucky because I remember, I remember watching the World Cup final and they actually hit the post at one all in the last moment of, of regular time before Argentina uh, would I, win I, it. Yeah, I, I remember that. They had the same problem. So they lost their goalkeeper in the second round. I think in the game against Italy, which they had to win to make the final when Ariane scored that goal. Um, and what's his name? Winning goal again. Oh, young young blood is in, in goal against. Yeah, he went in goal again. And it's Jan van Beveren was the best Dutch goalkeeper in the 1970s, but he kept falling out with Johan Cruyff. And mm. they brought him back in 76, and Johan Cruyff made life difficult for him again. And he turned around and said, Right, I'm never playing for you again. If they had him in goal, I think. You know, the two World Cups went begging. He was injured, actually, for 74 and was only given, you know, half a game to prove his fitness. But in 78, you know, he was in his prime. They probably would have won. Um, but, you know, like you said, they got to the final. And, you know, before the final, Argentina delayed coming out. And when they came out, they complained. I can never remember it was Rennie van der Kerkhoff or his brother that had the cast on his hand. But, I believe, um, believe it was Rene because uh, yeah. he, he, he had... He, damaged his hand he was wearing a plaster cast which the argentines yeah. objected to yeah which kind of delayed it they were doing all the kind of mind <laughs> games but yeah they hit the post hit the post in you know the last seconds i still remember that clearly i mean that 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 the archie gamble goal i mean obviously it's immortalized in train spotting everyone knows the uh the the you know anyone that was mm. of that time will remember it and i suppose um in in a very scottish way nearly it was, it was so close so far wasn't it i mean because it was tantalizingly close for a few moments until that that um that johnny rep goal which then probably put it just to a touch too far out of reach but it, um, it's one of the glorious failures um yeah but you know annie mcleod took a lot of the blame and was never the same person again you know and you know you always he basically wanted to do the best for Scotland. Yeah, you know, he basically wanted to do the best. He wasn't going out there to fail. You know, admittedly, no. some circumstances got the better of him. Admittedly, he made some poor selections. A lot of the players let him down. Um, but, you know, for a good two years, he made the Scottish fans believe that they had the team who could compete rather than just show up. And play along, you know, and the results are proving that. You know, they they beat Chile four two in a spectacular performance, three one one with Argentina, lost only to two late goals to Brazil. They beat England at Wembley, the famous one with the crossbars, etc. You yeah. know, he got the results against Czechoslovakia, got the results against Wales. You know, um, and yeah, he was he was getting there. You know, and he had to. He kind of did it in a very short space of time because Joe Allman resigned. Um, to go manage Hearts, I think it was. And they originally offered the role to uh, Jock Steen, who looked like he was going to take it and turned it down. And the only other person that had won a domestic trophy in recent years in Scottish football was Ali McLeod. And, you know, he turned around a, um, a failing um, Aberdeen team and took them to third in the league and won the cup. So, you know, they offered him the job. He wanted 48 hours to think about it. And they kind of put pressure on him. And so, you know, he took the job, back, you know, thinking about it. He was only paid £14,000 a year for it as well. And it's strange yeah. when you think that. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, it's, to be fair, it's, it's it was about the same as I think Tommy Doherty was getting at Man United. Um, yeah. They weren't paid well. But, you know, he kind of installed this enthusiasm. Yeah, he said, I'm a winner, you know. And, yeah, the players were saying, yeah, he came in, you know, some of them were thinking, you know, what's, what's he on, you know, basically saying mm. this. But, you know, like you say, there's no point going into a game and saying, oh, we're going to lose. Oh, the no, who does that? Like, no no one does that. Yeah. No manager does that. Yeah. So, you know, he was kind of doing the right thing, um, kind of the right approach. You know, he, he when he was on his game, he could get the tactics right. He could get it spot on. But he gets pilloried a lot, um, mainly in the English press, you know, for saying the same things England managers have said all the time. He gets pilloried for the results against Peru, even though they were like South American champions. The Iran game, 
you know, that's a given, but you've got to look at the players there. You know, he got let down. There's nothing he can do once they cross the line. But, you know, he took an, yeah. yeah, he took an awful lot of blame. You know, they, so after they got knocked out, they had to go straight back to Buenos Aires. And mm. they were put into the official FIFA hotel, which apparently was a bit of a dump. And Martin Bucken knew Spanish and got them into a better hotel. And apparently one of the players, who shall remain nameless, when he was walking through the lobbies and saw the bedrooms, turned around to Andy McLaren and said, oh, if only we had a hotel like this in Cordova. Imagine what the results would have been like. Yeah, like, like the hotel is going to make much difference when you get on the pitch, but there we are. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's kind of, it goes in the mentality, but, you know, it, it's it's a very interesting World Cup and Andy McLeod is a very interesting manager. You know, he's a manager yeah. that, you know, you if you learn a bit about him, you understand just why he got the job and why he was so popular and why he actually was very good at the job. Um, it's just, you know, it's a bit like Graham Taylor. He's, you know, the yeah, turnips, one, another, sweets, two. Another decent choice. man crushed by the, what should we call it, the the hysteria that comes with football. I mean, it's just mm. interesting watching the, the YouTube footage again after all these years um i think it's in in, in the um the iranian game actually i think that they, they zero in on ali mcleod in the um it's kind of slightly below ground type um team bench they've got there and you can see the physical impact of this unfolding we finish a draw but it was an unfolding disaster from from his yeah, personal Eddie, point of view you can see the human impact on him now you know Eddie's hands. Yeah. his wife said you could see drain she's you know yeah, like I said, that seventy-eight love story documentary. She said, you know, she saw him and she said she, he wasn't the same man. He didn't look like Ali McLeod at all, no. you know, because he was always full of life, you know, full of zest kind uh, of thing, you yeah, know, and very jubilant. And he could see it all crumbling away. And he, you know, he went there with, you know, like I said, good intentions. And Scotland had a very strong team. Well, it had it had a strong team that had been weakened, and I think. That's kind of the problem. When you miss a few parts of the puzzle, it kind of it's more difficult to kind of you know yeah. achieve anything. But at the same time, you know, other teams like the Dutch were missing Johan Cruyff. You know, for example, West Germany didn't have Beckenbauer or Muller. Um, no, you know, so no. they weren't the only team to go. They were about a full strength team, and you know, even Brazil were kind of you know feeling their way through the you know the, through the changes, shall we say. We've mentioned the um, to, moving on to the second round. I mean, obviously Holland would progress. This was a strangely organised World Cup. Listeners, in that the second round was not a knockout; it was another group stage. He went from group stage to group stage, which um, I think they persevered with that approach in the '82 Spanish World Cup as well. Neil, but it, it, it was an oddly um, it took some of the drama out in some ways of certainly of, of the second round in, in some respects, although. We've mentioned already the pressure of the uh, the Argentine uh, military regime needing, and I think it was they needed a result that either win. So the pressure that comes with that shall we probably won't we can't really say corruption, but um, certainly it produced some some odd situation. It just occurred to me as you were talking earlier on that I remember um, a very odd incident: uh, Clive Thomas, the Welsh referee. Blowing for full time against Brazil, um, their opponents, Sweden. Freedom, yeah. Um, the ball was in mid-flight from a shot, and it went in the net. Spectacular goal, and bang on forty-five. He said that the whistle blown the whistle before it entered the net. I mean, it never been seen before, never been seen since. We now live in the era of added time, so it probably wouldn't ever be seen. But and they, there's a kind of unspoken rule now: you let allow a play to to finish before you blow up. But. <sighs> The more I look at that now, with the benefit of hindsight, you wonder what was what was going into that. Funny enough, again, Clive Thomas never managed. Oh, sorry, refereed another refereed, um, no. World Cup game. But in the official film of 1978, he actually um, Ronnie Hellstrom, the Swedish goalkeeper, actually asked him how long left, and he told Ronnie Hellstrom the kick, corner kick is the last kick of the game. So he'd already told Ronnie Hellstrom that it was the last kick of the game. So that and if cool you ever look kick at will be it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you ever look at that, um, that you can go on tube and look at that. Just look at Ronnie mm. Hellstrom. He's already walking out of his goal because yeah. he knows the club promise is already blown. He's got no interest in it. And the Brazilians did take an awful long time over that corner, to be fair. Um, and yes, that did impact them. You know, at the end of the day, they didn't make the final as a result um, on goal difference. But you know, it's one of those strange 
quirks of football that you have these group games. And again, if they, that's one of the reasons, again, with the kind of West Germany-Austria game, why last group games are now played at the same time. Although, again, if you watch the Austria-West German game, it's only really the last 20 minutes where they start kicking the ball around because they realise, yeah. actually, this result, if we don't think we could get knocked out here. Yeah. I mean, they did, they did away with, I mean, the, the Argentine, the more famous example, I suppose, is the um, Brazil won their last uh, game in the group, second group stage against Poland 3-1, which meant that Argentina needed, I think it was a four-goal win or something. Four-goal like win, yeah. They needed a four-goal win um, against Peru, who we've already said a few times were a very decent side. And who knows what, what pressures were brought on the Peruvian team um, that day. Um, maybe none, maybe, maybe none. Well, their goalkeeper was, was Argentinian. He was born in Argentina. He was a naturalised Peruvian. And I remember watching this. I, I sat he got up late. Booked, he got booked at half a life attacking a Polish player. <laughs> oh, dear. I remember sitting up late and watching this famous 6-0 win for Argentina because um, the, the game's played in the uh, South American time, so... The, the night game started, I think it was about 11 o'clock at night. And yet, you, you know, they went on till like one o'clock in the morning in, in, in British time. But this was um, a famous, famous um, series of results because they, Argentina kicked off after Brazil had finished their game. So they knew what they had to do. They needed a 4-0, uh, four-goal clear spread. And they would win it 6-0 and qualify for the final. Um I think we've made our point on, on that already, Neil. And, and, and the final was obviously, um, would turn out to be a classic in the end, 3-1, but for the large chunks of the game. I mean, Argentina were the kind of edgily in front. I mean, the, the Dutch, um, they led from a Kempes goal in the 38th minute in the final. And, and um, the Dutch actually equalised late. That Dick Naninga, there's a name from the past I've forgotten. Um which would take it to extra time, but only after the Dutch had actually hit the post. I think it really was the last kick of, of regular time. Yeah. Um, but it would have been very different. Yeah. 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 Even going back to the first group stage, if you watch that, I mean, Argentina rode their luck. I mean, they lost to Italy. Yeah. There were question marks over that, whether they lost to Italy so they would avoid the stronger group because Italy went into a group with, um, it was Austria, West Germany and the Dutch. Um, so quite a strong group. Um, yeah. Not that Poland, Sweden, and Brazil wasn't that strong, you know, but, you know, of the two, you know, you would say the other one was definitely the strongest. But, you know, against Hungary in the first game, Hungary went ahead and they got two players sent off because um, it, it turned into a brawl, basically. But, you know, not, and I don't think an Argentinian was even booked, you know, and it was kind of, shall we say, fortune favoured them. I mean, we, we, we've mentioned the physical impact and long-term impact on on Scottish manager Archie McLeod. Um, I think we can't Ali let McLeod. the Addie McLeod. Sorry, sorry, Addie McLeod. Sorry, I'm getting my Archies and my Allies and my McQuists and my 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 uh, my McLeods mixed up in my head. Um, Ali McLeod. Um, but I think we can't pass the conversation without mentioning the the evident physical impact on the Argentine manager, Cesar Menotti, who I remember watching. It was a very 1970s turned out jacket, shirt and tie with a kind of a 70s style long haircut. But he must have got through 20 fags per game. I mean, he was constantly chain smoking, chain smoking on the side and gaunt cheekbones. I mean, there was not an ounce of fat on him. He was clearly, he had a haunted look about him. And again, with benefit of hindsight, you can kind of picture why. Because yeah. he carrying the weight of a nation on his shoulders and a nation with a ruthless military government. So that's what well, I call had, pressure as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, it took balls to drop Maradona. Um, and he did it because he didn't think he could cope with the pressure. Didn't play him, did he? Didn't know he's right. Didn't no, 17-year-old. Yeah, didn't even put him in the squad, you know, when the people were going for him. And, you know, he was on a free players' cup. Um but you know, it's it's funny how Arviles, Vila, um, Tarantini, etc., ended up in the UK. Sabella, you know, it's funny you had this influx of Argentinian players. Yeah, yeah. Coming as a result of that, but um, I mean, it's it, yeah. Even even watching it now, you watch the games, and it's like there were some fantastic goals. You know, there's fantastic games there. You know, it's a very maligned World Cup in parts, but you know, I think 80, 82 did kind of knock it into a 
had to a bit, you know, cocked out for a bit in terms of the games and the drama because you know they had knockout phases well, some, at the end. Yeah, the quality of the football in '82 was probably uh, well, there were some standout games. Let's put it that way. There were standout games in this. I, I think it's for me '78 was made a visual impact that I've never really forgotten because. It particularly defined, but every Argentine game was played with a with this um, ticker tape welcome, where the, the the pitch was covered in bits of white paper, um, and it was just so spectacular, Neil. It, it was visually something I'd never seen before, um, and it stands in my mind you know, for that reason. I understand what you mean. Yeah, if you had the grainy coloured pictures and the commentary down the telephone line, there's something yeah. about that that. Adds a bit of magic to the night. I remember that kind of commentary going into European Cups and you know European Championships yeah. and World Cups, well into the kind of mid eighties, where you had the crappy phone line, and it's like suddenly you think, yeah, this is a bit special. This is yeah. this is a bit you know, exotic. This is a bit glamorous. You know, it looked exotic. Yeah, um, we, we've we've lost it with the we're in the era of HD high, instant television, so we've kind of lost it now, and it will never come back. But the magic of the Argentina 1978 World Cup was that the the the, the immensity of the of, of the uh, paper thrown in the air as the teams come out there, the mass hysteria that came with it, the Argentina chants and the, the blue and uh, sky blue and white uh, flags everywhere, um, and then eventually it would come good for the country in the end because um, the Dutch would hit the post in the final, it would stay one all into extra time, and then Mario Kempes. And Be- I've forgotten Bertoni scored. He's, he's the forgotten the forgotten goal of the finals. Kempes drew the uh, the headlines, didn't he? Awful, awful goalkeeping with that one. Awful goal. Yeah. Went with his feet. He tried to slide tackle it out rather than die full stretch. Never worked that. Whether that was just a desperate lunge to give him his due, I don't know. But uh, yeah, there's a picture of it where yeah, he's kind of hammering it home. <laughs> he's kind of trying to stop it like a defender. I don't know. There we are. Um, Argentine, the Argentine Junta would get their moment of national glory, which, as ever in these in the way of the world, fades after a little, quite a short space of time. Actually, if national mm. glory can fade quite quickly, and though it would would fade quite quickly, um, leading on to nineteen eighty two, and another attempt at national glory with the seizure of the Falkland Islands. Which, but that's another another subject for another podcast, another day, Neil. That's, um, that's another World Cup. Another oh, World Cup, another World Cup. Maybe we'll come back and do <clears throat> Spain eighty two another day, mate. Um, I really appreciate your time. So you've got a job interview soon, so I'm going to have to let you go. So yeah, you know. Scottish manager job. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we do Spain eighty two. Um, big thank you, Neil. I really appreciate your time this morning, mate. Thank you very much for coming on the show. All no right, thanks for having me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.